Hello, everyone, and welcome to LSE for this uh, very exciting event, uh, which celebrates the launch of Francis Green and David Kiniston's excellent new book, Engines of Privilege, Britain's Private School Problem. My name is Sam Friedman. I'm an associate professor in sociology here at LSE uh, and also a commissioner at the government's Social Mobility Commission. And by way of a very short introduction, uh, I should say this is a topic very close to my own heart, not only as my own research touched on uh, the private school problem, most recently in a study with Aaron Reeves here at LSE, showing the enduring power of Britain's most elite public schools in delivering their old boys into elite destinations. Um, but this topic is also uh, personally important to me. Uh, I am a private school boy myself. Uh, I attended uh, Bristol Grammar School um, between the ages of 11 to 16, and actually I credit the experience as the inadvertent catalyst of my career as a sociologist. Uh, for here it was, I uh, really came to understand the profound nature of my own uh, privilege, the advantages it would perhaps always afford me, and how fundamentally unfair that was in a society that, as a teenager, I had thought was built on the principle of equality of opportunity. Uh, being at a private school came to define my adolescence, destroying my relationships with old primary school friends that had gone into comprehensives, causing huge arguments with my parents, who I accused of being the ultimate champagne socialists. Uh, <laughs> and marking countless debates with fellow pupils seemingly unaware of Brit Bristol's class stratification outside the cosy and leafy confines of the school. I left Bristol Grammar age 16, but my easy, uneasiness about the experience has very much stayed with me. I, I like to think it's galvanised my research interests in inequality, uh, but in truth it's, always, uh, it's also something that I think like many people in this country and perhaps some uh, here tonight, particularly on the left, um, something that I've sort of often tried to hide um, that you know, often have felt frankly embarrassed by um, and even uh, angry about. So for all of these reasons, I was incredibly glad uh, to read Francis and David's book, to have these and many other issues so elegantly uh, and articulately uh, expressed um, and explored and debated in the book. Uh, and I very much hope it acts to initiate a much wider national conversation about private schools starting hopefully uh, this evening with a lively and provocative uh, conversation and debate. Now, I just want to give you a very brief outline of today's, uh, tonight's event and then some information about the speakers. So first, uh, Francis and David will give an overview of the book. Um, that will be about 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, now, most of you, of course, already um, know um, both of them, but for those that don't, Francis Green is Professor um, of Work and Education Economics at UCL uh, and is one of the world's most revered academic experts on the economic and social effects of private schooling. Uh, and David Kiniston is one, one of Britain's best-known historians, uh, currently an honorary professor at Kingston University, the author of 20 books and someone who's been writing about private schooling journalistically and academically for uh, the last 10 years or so. After Francis and David have finished, I'm going to hand over to Dr. Luna Glucksberg, um, who will give a five to ten minute response. Luna is a, a researcher at the NS LSE International Inequalities Institute, uh, an anthropologist by training, uh, and her work fo focuses particularly on elites and the way they re re reproduce their wealth over generations. After Luna's finished, we'll open up to questions from the floor um, for hopefully 
30 minutes or so. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to Francis and David to kick us off. Sam, thank you very much indeed. Thank you all for coming this evening. It feels for me a bit like a coming home. Um, Francis and I both did our second degrees at the LSE, um, and actually we got to know each other playing for the LSE alumni cricket team, the economicals, in those long-gone, high-scoring, fast-running 1980s. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here, and, uh, and as I say, thank you so much for coming this evening. So why this book? Why have we written this book? I guess two main reasons. First, we wanted to highlight the issue itself, the private school issue, and try to explain why, in our view, um, the existence of this flourishing private school sector in Britain stands in the way of a fairer and more effective education system and also a fairer, more cohesive society. So that's highlighting the issue uh, uh, and trying to explain its importance was the first reason. The second reason was to try constructively to suggest a way forward and to put on the table various realistic proposals. Uh, And our hope would be that over the next, say, five or ten years, as and when, hopefully, politicians, policymakers, whoever, even the schools themselves, actually, uh, really decide to take this issue seriously and do something substantive about it, uh, that our book might be, we would hope, of some use, of some relevance. It was also a book born out of frustration. The elephant in the room is a tired metaphor, but it's one inescapably we found ourselves reaching for. Uh, the, the, The reluctance, above all, I think, the reluctance of but to some extent the media, but above all politicians, to speak out. Uh, one politician has referred to it as a third rail issue. In other words, if you're a politician, touch it and you're dead. Um, uh, and at the time we were writing the book, mainly last year, among senior politicians in this country, I think it's correct to say that only Michael Gove and Andrew Adonis had ever really come out and spoken about it in any significant or substantive way. Uh, those two, those two brave pioneers, uh, have now been joined by Ed Miliband, who, to our great pleasure last week, came out strongly in an article in Metro, uh, partly in support of the book, more importantly, in support of doing something about the issue, about reforming the private school system. And another uh, 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 senior Labour MP, but not a Corbynista, uh, Rachel Reeves tweeted uh, in support. So we were very grateful for, 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 for Miliband and Reeves uh, for, for, for that support. Um, I'll, I'll hand over to Francis in a, in a moment, but it strikes me that it's just possible, um, and it would be beyond the power of any author or any politician or even any book reviewer, but the plates might be shifting in a fundamentally anti-privileged direction in this country. It's just possible. Who knows? Just possible. What we do know is that it's now de rigueur for Etonians to speak mockney. So something might be shifting. If they are shifting these plates, then those engines of privilege, as we call them, will inescapably be in the firing line. But as ever, only time will tell. So meanwhile, pending the plate shifting, Francis Could you drill down and tell us a bit more about the problem itself and why it matters? So, why worry about private schools? Question's been put to me on a number of occasions. There's only about seven, six or seven percent of children uh, at any one time at private schools, but it's about one in 16 pupils overall. And yet, and yet, one in every seven teachers, actually, 
works in the private sector. And one in every six pounds, one in every six educational pound is spent in the private sector. So in terms of numbers, actually, they're a lot bigger than that 7% figure might first suggest. And in fact, this means that in practice, the resource gap between the private sector and the state sector per pupil is roughly a ratio of three to one. Think about that for a moment, three to one. It's not like, well, some schools are getting 20% or 30% more than other schools, and that might get you a little bit annoyed. It's 300% more than other schools per pupil. It's an extremely large gap. And beyond the numbers, the importance of private schools resides in the fact that they are, in effect, beacons of inequality within the educational system. Having a sector with such enormous wealth and, and enormous influence looming above and largely apart from the education system for the rest of the population, it seems to me affects the perspectives of all involved in the education system. Let me try to illustrate uh, with a couple of pictures, a picture is worth a thousand words, as they say, the yawning uh, resource gap between the two sectors. Here's one uh, extremely rich private school. By the way, I went to it <laughs> a long time ago. Uh, but uh, as I often discuss, what I say doesn't depend on who I am. What I say, whether it's true or not, you have to assess for what it is, not for who I am. Here's some other schools, photographs that I took from local state schools around us in Kent. Compare the one with the other. I think it's pretty clear the resource gap just in those pictures. Leave aside the two-to-one ratio in the, in the numbers of teachers per pupil and so on and so forth. Now, this resource gap matters. We know now from the evidence from a number of large-scale studies that uh, it leads to better educational results, at least as far as measured by test scores, exam results, and so on and so forth. This happens at every level. There are studies now showing that at primary school level, private school children progress more than state school men, uh, children, even allowing for prior measures of ability, even allowing for their social background. They nonetheless progress modestly, but significantly more. Again, at the lower secondary level, up to GCSE, there are a couple of studies now demonstrating a modest but significant effect. And again, at the sixth form. So if you build up all these modest uh, uh, but significant effects, you get quite a cumulative impact of being at a private school through your childhood career. And what does that end up in? Better access to universities. And uh, not only to universities generally, but to the more high-ranking universities. So that uh, if you take similar children or similar people coming from families with a managerial or professional background and say, what are their chances of getting into an elite university? Let's define an elite university as a Russell Group University for the sake of this argument. Then we find that going to a private school doubles your chances of getting into an elite university for similar kinds of people. And then when you get into the labour market, you see 
tremendous rewards as well. They're summed up both in the question of mobility and in the question of pay. So that, uh, for example, if you come from a, a relatively high status occupational background, being at a private school seriously reduces your chances of demotion down to a, uh, becoming a, 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 a low, in, in a low status occupation. And it also gives you a pay premium. So that, well, the latest estimate is that for 25-year-olds recently, this is like the millennial generation, that generation that came, uh, came into maturity in the, in the 2000s, for that generation there is estimated to be a 17% wages premium at the ages of 25 for similar children. The privately educated get 17% more than the state educated person. That's a big gap and it gets bigger as life goes on. So there are big rewards and most importantly of all perhaps the differences show up in positions of public influence and here we have a picture which is due to the Sutton Trust uh, which uh, study uh, those people who, who arrive at positions of, of, of uh, public influence uh, in 2016 one third of MPs <coughs> and one third of CEOs <coughs> of uh, FTSE 100 companies were privately educated. This is bearing in mind only 9% of people were ever privately educated and only 7% are going at any one time, but one third of our MPs. One half of our cabinet uh, members and uh, one half of our senior civil servants uh, are privately educated. A particular anecdote there was that when Boris Johnson uh, resigned as um, uh, foreign secretary, uh, a little while ago, it then became the first Conservative cabinet since 1838 in which there was not a member of Eton in the Conservative cabinet, since 1838. Three quarters of our judges and, and generals are privately educated, and overall 40% 40, 40 of our uh, the 500 so-called most influential people in Britain are privately educated. So there's something of a statement there about the democracy in which we live in. Now, if everybody could go to a private school and somehow the social composition of the private school was, was, was uh, evenly spread across the population, it wouldn't matter, but in fact, alas, that's not the case. Here we have what we call the hockey stick diagram, the upside-down hockey stick diagram. It measures the participation in a private school according to your income. And you'll see that it's not until you get up into about 90% you get any appreciable proportions of people going to a private school. You'll notice that even at the lower income levels there are people going to private school. How can that possibly happen? Well, there's two answers to that. One is family wealth, and sometimes even if you're only, say, 30-40% up the income distribution, you have saved up wealth or your grandparents or your aunts and uncles and so on are able to fund it. The other, for a small number, is bursaries. And this is, this is the solution that's pushed often by insiders within the sector. They say, well, it's okay, the population is much more open, population attending private schools much more open because we have bursaries and they're increasing and so on and so forth. Well, we've looked at the figures, we've examined official figures, official data 
on the dispensement of bursaries and so on, and they go like this. 4% of the total turnover of bursaries, 4% goes into bursaries. And only 1% of the children of private schools actually go free. And that hasn't changed over the years. So despite the good intentions of many private school heads and, and many private school teachers who are themselves worried about this social composition, they've not been able to make changes over the years. So what's the problem with all of this? In our view, there's three main aspects to that problem. The first we're calling systemic inefficiency. What do we mean by that? First of all, having our educational resources so unequally distributed is not only unfair, it's very inefficient. So that if one school's already got, say, 20 playing fields, and another school's got one playing field, and you say, where is the best place to put another playing field? Well, if you give the one that's already got 20, make it 21, they could possibly make use of it, but not much value to that. If you give it to the school that's only got one and double it, then you make a lot more use of it. So equality is efficient in that sense. Another way in which the very unequal distribution is inefficient is through what we call the sheer extravagance of these schools. Incredible amounts of money have been spent on these schools in the last 20 years. Recently, someone I know who was a member of an acting troupe was going along to give a performance in one of the private schools uh, within Kent. And he arrived with his troop of actors at the gates of the school and said, please would you tell us where the theatre is? And the response was, which theatre would you like to go to, sir? <laughs> and indeed it's been pointed out that within the private schools in London, there are 59 theatres. That compares with actually 42 in London's West End. I like most of all the comment of one journalist named Ben Chu writing in The Independent a couple of years ago, who looking at what some of the private schools have become and said, wow, they're basically country clubs with schools attached to them. <laughs> well, that's not all there is to the inefficiency. There's also the argument about the positional effect of private schooling. Because part of what the, the money spent on private schooling does is not just give you a good education, but it also moves you up the ranks. So if something is particularly ranked, like, say, access to Oxford or Cambridge universities or to particularly scarce jobs in the city of London or so on, if they're ranked and you push one group further up, it's pretty good for that group that gets pushed further up, but the ones that don't get in or have their chances reduced to getting in, they get put further down. So to that extent, the education is of a private value, but not, of course, of any social value if you take the whole population. So in all those ways, we think that private uh, schools, heavy spending on the private schools is inefficient. <laughs> Moving on to the second uh, bullet point there, the democratic deficit. In a way, that's kind of more obvious. Uh, looking at that uh, 
Sutton Trust diagram we had up uh, a, a few moments ago, uh, uh, the concentration in positions of public influence. Um, the privileged and entitled products of an elite private education have only, we would argue, a, a limited and partial understanding of and empathy with the realities of everyday life as lived by most people. So, indeed, it marked some kind of apotheosis when in July uh, 2014, uh, the appointment of Nicky Morgan as the Education Secretary meant that every single minister in the Education Department was privately educated, supposed to be running the state education system. What is the defense of that? Well, the ex-educational uh, ex uh, correspondent for the Financial Times, one David Turner, wrote an interesting book about private schools two or three years ago, more or less in their defense, and he assures us that uh, that's okay, it doesn't matter that these positions of influence in our society are monopolized or disproportionately occupied by private school alumni because, he said, David Cameron and other Eton boys were given a good political education at a school with a long tradition of educating politicians. I leave you with just that there. I think the argument stands. Fundamentally, of course, though, it's to do with fairness. And I'm going to give you a quotation some of you may have seen before. In 2014, Alan Bennett, well-known playwright, gave a sermon in Cambridge in King's College, and amongst other things he said what you see there. Private education is not fair. Those who provide it know it. Those who pay for it know it. Those who have to sacrifice in order to purchase it know it. And those who receive it know it or should and if their education ends without it dawning on them, then that education has been wasted. Well, you might say that's just one man's opinion, but in order to see whether the uh, unfairness was a general perception or not, we commissioned a poll from Populous and put to a representative sample of the British population the following question, asking whether they agreed or disagreed with the statement it, it, that it, well you see it there in front of you, it's unfair that some people with a lot of money get a better education and life chances for their children by paying for a private school. And I'm now going to give you the answers that came out of there. We see that 63% agreed with that proposition and actually more people strongly agreed with it than slightly agreed with it. 19% were neutral or answer don't know, 18% either slightly or strongly disagreed with that population uh, proposition. So it's pretty obvious there, I think, that there's a large a slice of the population, a large majority of the population, that would agree with Alan Bennett that the private school system is unfair. So I'm now going to uh, 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 pass it back to David, because... The question is, what's been the response to it over the ages of our politicians to this problem of unfairness? Thank you, Francis. Uh, well, in a word, I think pretty disappointing. Um, the problem has not gone entirely unnoticed over the last century or so. Um, but on the whole, it's been a story of political inaction. Uh, um, 
Uh, very quick whistle-stop whistle tour now. There are two crucial decades in the story, the 1940s and the 1960s. The 1940s, for obvious reasons, the war and the immediate aftermath of war, was the decade par excellence in 20th century Britain, when potentially everything was up for grabs. Um, the schools themselves, the private schools themselves, were, or, or public schools as they were known then, for some reason helpful to them, lost in the midst of time, but we can talk about it in the discussion afterwards, were on the whole call from private, but public if, if necessary. Um, they were fearful of what might happen to them in the 1940s. Um, there were two key, uh, two key people and moments. People, uh, on the left there, Rab Butler, uh, conservative, uh, in charge of education towards the end of the war. Uh, uh, the person who created the great 1944 Education Act um, that opened up secondary education for, for everybody. Um, uh, a genuinely pioneering and, and, and reforming act, uh, and it was his baby. But he deliberately excluded private schools from the act. Uh, instead, he deliberately shunted into the sidings what he afterwards called the first-class carriages. Uh, he, he played a blinder, actually, tactically speaking. Um, but it meant that at that point when the national education system was being reshaped, um, uh, uh, the private schools were just pushed quietly to one side. Um, uh, he was a reform-minded man, but uh, it had its limits. And I think also, perhaps tribally speaking, as a conservative at that time, and this is actually arguably applicable still up to the present day, reform uh, had its limits, tribally speaking, not wanting to be seen as, in that favourite word of that time, unsound. And then after the war, the great reforming Labour government following the 1945 landslide election, led by Clement Attlee in the centre there with the moustache. Um, and it was said of Attlee that apart from politics, he only really had two interests in life. One was cricket, and the other was Halebury. And Halebury was the private school where he'd been educated. And it was on the agenda, the possibility of doing something reasonably dramatic with the private schools. But he personally blocked it. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't just down to Attlee. It was also, there was this view expressed by his first um, education minister immediately after the war, Ellen Wilkinson. Ellen Wilkinson had been a great radical, uh, radical Labour figure of the 1930s. And she told her party in 1946 that the solution was to make the schools provided by the state, quote, so good and varied that it would seem, quote, quite absurd to send children to the public schools or to the private schools to make the state schools so good, so varied, that it would be absurd to want to send your children to, 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 to the fee-paying schools. Well, it was a noble aspiration. It remains a noble aspiration. But 73 years on, that's what it remains, a noble aspiration. So, ultimately, nothing of substance happened in the 1940s. The 1960s, the key figure is Anthony Crossland there, bottom right one of the really most fascinating men in post-war British political history. In 1956, he wrote The Future of Socialism, the, the cardinal text for many, many years of democratic, uh, democratic socialism. And he referred to the fee-paying sector as, quote, much the most flagrant inequality of opportunity as it is cause of class inequality generally 
in our educational system. And he then went straight on with a much-quoted uh, much uh, sentence. He went on, I have never been able to understand why socialists have been so obsessed with the question of a grammar schools and so indifferent to the much more glaring injustice of the independent schools. <clears throat> well, ten years later also, a decade later, in the mid-60s, he was education secretary, and we all know what happened. Um, on the one hand, action was taken to start to virtually end the grammar schools, whether rightly or wrongly is a separate question. Um, so to virtually end the grammar schools, and not a glove was laid on the private schools, not a glove, despite Crossland in 1956 having declared that was where socialists should concentrate their energies, not on the grammar school question. Why did Crossland fail to, to lay a glove? Well, it's a complicated story, uh, and, and, and there are several reasons, but I think it was ultimately because, A, Crossland's libertarianism trumped his egalitarianism, and B, a, a certain sense of fatalism. He lost faith in the ability to do anything substantive. He saw it as too difficult, too complex uh, a, a question. That feebleness culminated in what really was the hopeless flop of the Public Schools Commission that Crossland had set up. The commission reported in July 1968 uh, and led to, absolutely led to nowhere. And here we come to cartoon time. And this cartoon appeared in The Guardian on July the 25th, 1968, amidst various letters in the correspondence pages uh, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Commission's report. July the 25th, 1968, uh, a rather angry-looking man, Sir, with reference to your leader on the public school system, divisive influence on our society, dot, dot, dot. And the killer, of course, is the date on the calendar above him, 25th of July, 2068, exactly 100 years later. In other words, with the implication that nothing will have changed 100 years on. Well, last year was when Francis and I were mainly writing this book, 2018, and it was hard not to be aware that we were exactly halfway between 1968 and 2068. Indeed, now, 2019, we're actually slightly nearer to 2068, and we haven't got a whole lot further. <coughs> Very briefly, what's happened since the 1960s in terms of action, some flickers of action, and I'll mention four very briefly. In the early 70s, Roy Hattersley, when he was Labour's Shadow Education Secretary, did talk of abolition, uh, but that was rapidly quashed by his party leader, Harold Wilson, who accused Hattersley of having got, quote, religion. So that went. Uh, secondly, in the Thatcher, uh, Thatcher Major era, 1980s and 90s, there was the Assisted Places Scheme. Uh, it, it didn't uh, result in very much uh, uh, positive. Entry was determined by the schools, and the scheme was ruthlessly gamed by the middle class and their accountants. So in terms of changing the social composition of the schools, uh, it, it really didn't make much, much difference. Then moving to new labour, but basically, broadly speaking, uh, shied away from the issue. It did bring in a Charities Act in 2006, uh, and that was laying down um, how recipients of charitable status, including the private schools, would, would need to demonstrate public benefit. But the um, demands imposed on the schools in terms, of, uh, in terms of demonstrating public benefit were very much watered down. They were pretty soft and, and, and didn't really go anywhere. Uh, and there's no doubt that Tony Blair, as, 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 as Labour leader, had absolutely no interest in, in taking on the private schools. 
Um, and then lastly, where we are now politically. As far as the Conservatives are concerned, Theresa May made so much uh, after coming to power in 2016 of uh, the great meritocracy and so on. But now it's pretty feeble from the Tories. They pin their hopes on partnerships, i.e. partnerships between private and state schools. But it's very much on a voluntary, largely unaccountable basis uh, and doesn't really seem to make a significant difference, especially in terms of any redistribution of resources. It's minute compared with that fundamental glaring three-to-one uh, inequality in resources as a whole. As for Labour, uh, 2017 manifesto, uh, they did put forward uh, charging VAT on school fees. Uh, not an insignificant uh, suggestion at all, actually, uh, in order to pay for free school meals. But there's never been, whether in the manifesto or before or since, any kind of surrounding dialogue or explanation or campaign about the issue more generally. Uh, they just, uh, uh, the Corbyn-led party just hasn't wanted to go there. So why is there this long-standing failure, especially on the left, effectively to engage with the issue? And I think I'm sure we'll come back to this in the discussion. But here, very quickly, let me suggest four reasons. One, the fear of the charge of hypocrisy. If you've been privately educated yourself, if you've sent your children to a private school, you'll be accused of being hypocritical if you actually want to change the system. And it's a very real, 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 real fear. Uh, and I think it's inhibited... Uh, uh, not just politicians, it's inhibited the media. Uh, it certainly applies to the Guardian newspaper, uh, all sorts of things. We can talk about that later. Secondly, uh, the point, the, the in some ways valid point, but only up to a point, uh, that educational and voters' priorities lie elsewhere. After all, we're only talking about a system that educates 7%. Uh, so at any one time, there's going to be some issue affecting the 93% in state schools that takes priority. And so at the moment, for example, you know, the, the re recruitment of teachers and, and resources generally. I mean, the state sector is absolutely strapped at the moment for resources. And that we're talking about 93% of the population. So at any one time, it never seems, the private school issue, never seems the most important issue uh, uh, around. Thirdly... Uh, this is slightly my own pet theory, but I think sometimes on the left there's anxiety that if you go on a, about the private, private uh, school problem, you are somehow implicitly denigrating the state system. And I, th I think that's an irrational anxiety, but I think it's there. And I, but I am often struck when I've talked with, with state school teachers about it, how on the whole they they're not that much interested in the private school question. They're getting on, obviously, with their own lives, their own jobs, and so on. But I think there is that implicit denigration uh, anxiety. And finally, as I mentioned with Crossland, fatalism, the sense that there are such powerful vested interests involved, the sense that it's all too difficult, it's all too invidious, and I think that plays a part too. But I'm sure we'll come back to that in discussion. Meanwhile, Francis, what's to be done? Give us some practical and achievable thoughts. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. <laughs> Let's move away from the cartoon and just leave this slide up for a while. We've done our own thinking about options for reform, building on other people's ideas that have been bubbling under in discussion over the last 10 or 15 years. And broadly speaking, if you want to reform the private schools and the private school system, you can think of the proposals that have been offered in two categories. One set, in a sense, finds ways of curtailing the demand, persuading parents 
not to go for private schools for one way or another. And another set <coughs> involves some kind of integrating of the supply of education, integrating the two sectors, the private sector and the state sector, in some way, whether partial or total or whatever. So I think it's quite a good way of thinking about the various proposals and how they might work or might not work. And I'm going to start with the curtailing of demand. First of all, there's this phrase, contextual admissions. Contextual admissions to where? To university. To university. And some of you, uh, some of you particularly in a place like this, will be aware of exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about proposals that have been around for a number of years to increase access to uh, lower-income families uh, to universities. And they come in a number of forms, but perhaps the, uh, the commonest form is some kind of differential offer, that if your circumstances are in some way disadvantaged through low income, then some universities have been offering differentially lower offers, perhaps two A's and a B to a, uh, an A-level candidate rather than three A's usually just a marginal difference of one grade, sometimes maybe two grades, exceptionally three. Alternatively, quotas. You could conceive of quotas sometimes, be, sometimes being proposed extremely. I've seen uh, someone saying, well, there are 7% of children are going to private school, only 7% uh, of places in Oxford and Cambridge should be available for privately educated people. That would be pretty drastic, considering they occupy about 42% at the moment. Whatever, contextual admissions are here to stay in some form or another, because the access uh, agenda of the government and of all, all recent governments is serious and possibly getting more and more serious. Um, and although mainly the criterion for getting contextual admissions is to do with things like have you spent time in a care home and so on and so forth occasionally whether you've been to a private school or a state school is taken into account and there's a very interesting example going on in Oxford at the moment where Lady Margaret Hall has uh, an access year in which students are admitted for a, a preliminary year as it were and given intensive tuition, and they continue on to become first-year undergraduates. Now, to get into that access year, you had to fulfil certain criteria, and one of which is to never have set foot inside a private school. Um, well, that's just an example, but it seems to me that if there were an intensification of this contextual admissions, it would be perfectly feasible to increase the role of the school type that you went to in the criterion used. The effects are difficult to judge, it has to, admit, has to be admitted there. The effects are difficult to judge. Some parents might be really put off. They say, well, I'm not going to spend whatever it is, an average fee of seven, over £17,000 a year to send my child to school if that child's going to be disadvantaged when they're trying to get into university. Other people might not worry about it so much. So that's contextual admissions. It seems to me a feasible thing which could be looked in more. We haven't got detailed proposals for that, but it seems to be something which is working for certain purposes at the moment and is likely to get uh, more intense in the future. The second proposal is basically to up the cost of it. And we saw a proposal in the Labour manifesto at the last election which was to put VAT on school fees, which would add 
whatever the VAT percentage rate is on school fees. And of course that would diminish the demand a bit. Anyone knows about price elasticity of demand? Any economists in the room? I don't know, but <laughs> we are at the LSE. Um, but if you push the price up, the demand will go down. But actually, the estimates for the price elasticity of demand are not very high, so that even a 15 or 20% increase in price doesn't actually reduce the amount of children going to private school very much. Um, a slightly more extreme version of this was proposed by Lord Adonis in the House of Lords only last December. No, sorry, now not, not last December, December before last, in the House of Lords, which was proposed what he called an educational opportunity tax, which he was going to make at 25%. So that would have put a higher price on the fees. So certainly that would reduce the demand for private schooling and by, we calculated perhaps 35, 40,000 pupils would switch from the private sector to the state sector. But that's still less than 10% of the population, the ch ch child population of private schools. So it makes an effect, a significant effect, that would not be a game changer. Some schools would undoubtedly close or switch to the state sector. More interesting, perhaps, are the proposals around which we've called crossing the tracks, proposals to integrate uh, the schools to some extent or another. And here I think it's important to distinguish between proposals where the schools retain their own private control over all the admissions and expulsions from the school. And uh, other proposals, which I'll come to in a moment, where there is some form of social control over admissions, whether it's the, the, the central government or more likely local government, controls the criteria for admission to those uh, places in the private schools. So first let me tell you about the Sutton Trust Open Access Scheme. This was a proposal of, by Peter Lample, who's the uh, director and the main benefactor of the Sutton Trust. Um, he got the agreement of 90 of the most prominent private day schools, day schools only, that they would open up access to their schools to completely open on academic merit. And if you got in that school on academic merit, then the funds would be provided to get you to go to there. And he envisaged that perhaps 30% of the children in those schools would be funded by the state, up to a certain amount. Uh, perhaps another 30 or 40% would be mixed funded by the state and the schools themselves, and the final 30% would be uh, all privately funded. A kind of version you might think of the old direct grant grammar schools, but there are uh, significant differences. So means-free, openly academically competitive, very selective. Of course, you can immediately hear a comprehensive school enthusiasts saying that that would have the tendency to cream off the brightest children from the local neighborhood, demoralize uh, the schools in the neighbourhood and so on and so forth for which there are responses from the Sutton Trust they say well it's too small it wouldn't make that much difference to which I say well if it's too small then it's not going to make much difference and solve our problem at all there is an even smaller scheme involved uh, proposed by the independent schools scheme in, sorry in the independent schools council 
uh, proposed in their manifesto in which they're going to take 10,000 students and put them in private schools, 10,000 state school students from low-income families and put them in state schools. And the government is going to fund them according to the same rate they would fund children in, 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 uh, in the state sector. So in other words, it wouldn't cost the state anything. So then they would make up the additional funds needed to educate them in the private school from their own funding. So they call it a joint funding model. And they're very proud of it, but it's much, much, much too small. It would cover perhaps 2% of private school students. And the extra money that would be needed for them would really, they could just take it out of their bursary funds and, and, and still have money to spare for their bursaries. So the problem with that is it's just, just far too small. The proposal that we're more enamoured with is something we've called a fair access scheme where not only would all the schools be obliged to take a proportion, we suggest initially 33% of children from uh, the state sector, but that they would have to admit those pupils according to something like the school's admissions code. Anyone who knows about schools will know there's a thing called the school's admissions code, which is not perfect, but nonetheless determines the criteria for admission to schools in any particular area. And we think that the private schools taking those uh, children to those 33% uh, 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 of places would have to conform to that. Uh, whether uh, it would stay at 33% or might even start lower than that, we envisage too that it would increase over time. But it would be introduced <coughs> gradually. We recognize that there are different skills involved in teaching in a private school and in a state school. We wouldn't suddenly want to change the composition overnight. But we feel that a 33% uh, initial uh, intake, say, for the first year of the school and then building it up, would, in the end, be a game changer. It would start to say, change the social composition of the school. It wouldn't be like just a few working class kids in the school struggling to find their place amongst all the toffs. 33% would change the dynamics of the school. So that's one of the, perhaps one of the, one of, one of the, the schemes that we propose, which we're, we're perhaps most enamoured of, and would be anxious and be, be very willing to, to have some discussion of. Before I finish, though, I want to mention a few things we've looked at in some detail and we think won't work. And I might disappoint some of you by suggesting that removing the charitable status of the schools won't be enough, it won't work. It's not that we're against removing the charitable status of private schools or making the schools more responsible to their charitable status than they are at the moment. It's just that, actually, when you look at the numbers, it's not worth all that much to them compared to the enormous revenues that they have. Indeed, not all schools are charities. Lots of schools decide not to be charities. It's simply not worth the effort and the bother in terms of what they save. They save some. They, instead of paying 100% local business rates, they pay 20% business rates, for example. So it would be a sum of money, perhaps £100 million a year overall. In economic terms, 
In material terms, it's not an enormous big deal to remove charitable status. Even if you could, there are legal issues involved there. We do recognize, however, that it has tremendous uh, symbolic value. So that, for example, when you walk down your local street and pass your private school and peer inside the gates and see all the affluent facilities and then go past the next bit, which is a state school, it probably is quite galling when you think, well, the first one is only paying one-fifth of its local business rates compared with the second one. It just seems unfair. And on the other hand, the private schools themselves relish their charitable status. They like to be known as charities. So, yes, it would have some impact, but we think primarily it would be symbolic, and we wouldn't like, we wouldn't like a reform strategy to rest on removing the charitable status. And people think, oh, that's it, we've done it now, we've solved the problem. It would not. They would continue more or less as they are now. The second bullet point there is what we call the politics of hypocrisy, and it relates to something that David was saying a few moments ago. Essentially, this would be the strategy, I don't know whether it's fair to call it a strategy, but somehow expecting to persuade parents through some kind of moral crusade that uh, to, they should ignore their desire for their children to succeed and do what's best for society and choose to send their children to state school and somehow the private schools would wither away. The politics of hypocrisy is a dead-end strategy. It won't work in terms of uh, changing anything and we're very much opposed to that. And the third bullet point there, well, it got a bit con uh, convoluted there, but essentially it's the idea of whether private philanthropy and expanding the bursary system is a viable way forward. And indeed, this is something which is pushed by many uh, well-meaning people within the private school sector itself. And there are some schools which have increased their bursary funds tremendously. Of course, they're the richer schools, uh, led by um, uh, 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 a Christ Hospital School, which has always had a very large um, bursary uh, system. But in practice, this is not a go it's not a goer. It's been calculated you probably have to raise for each school something like a 200 or 300 million pound fund in order to sustain a viable bursary scheme across all schools, which would seriously change the social composition of the schools. So even if there were some increase in the provision of bursaries from voluntary contributions from parents or alumni contributing to all these schools so they have large sums of money invested and they can use the income to, to fund um, low-income families. Um, it just it's never going to be enough uh, and it's just, it just it's not a viable proposition uh, in the long run, even in the short run. So it's one thing to say that there are feasible schemes, and I do believe that there are feasible schemes amongst those that I've outlined in the previous slide. They need development. It's one thing to say that there are those schemes, but it's important to recognize, to see that there are going to be plenty of uh, uh, political obstacles, and David's now going to conclude our talk with some thoughts on those obstacles and possible ways forward. Yeah, just to, just to finish with, um, 
Perhaps six quick thoughts to, 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 to bear in mind about where we are now and where we might be going and so on. And the first thought is just a very sober, realistic thought. Uh, don't forget the stark underlying reality of the situation. We have, on the one hand, systemic, fundamental unfairness. We come back to that ratio of resources, three to one, between the private and the state sectors. It's a huge, huge difference. And on the other hand, we have a deep and determined vested interest in the form of the private schools, as they now are, often with very powerful allies uh, in the city, in the press, in politics, and elsewhere. So um, they, they're, not, they're not just going to curl up and die, as it were. Secondly, picking up on what Francis was just saying, if we're going to get anywhere with this, we need an inclusive, non-name-calling debate and conversation, not indulging in the politics of hypocrisy, not blaming parents. We live in the world as it is. We may or may not like that world, but that's the world we live in, and we all have to make our choices within that world. And if we're going to get anywhere with this question, we need to stand back, be less personal, less emotional, more dispassionate. Um, uh, in general, we just need to be absolutely unlike the current Brexit debate, really. <laughs> Thirdly, inevitably, the Finnish example. Some of you will know about Finland. Um, Finland, um, in effect, abolished fee-paying education in the early 1970s. Uh, and that's remained the case now for, what, almost half a century. And the results have been staggering. When the first, what is it, the PISA rankings in uh, 2000, 2001 came out, there was Finland at the top of the global league table. Um, uh, and it's remained at or very near the top in the half century or so since the end of uh, fee-paying um, uh, fee, 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 fee education. And crucially, they had built up to this abolition in the early 70s by building, evolving gradually, but in a determined way, a consensus that this was the best way forward. And so there have been governments of different uh, uh, stripes, obviously in Finland since then, but they've all held to uh, the policy. There hasn't been a reversal of policy. So consensus building, in other words. And if you're interested in the Finnish example, the other day I was on the podcast that Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd do. It's called Reasons to be Cheerful. And I was on episode 71 on the third rail issue, as, as Miliband called it. And I mention it because actually later in the program I had a pre-recorded interview with Pazzi Salberg, who's the great Finnish educational uh, uh, expert. Uh, and I, I, I've not met him, but he's clearly a wonderful man. And it's really worth listening to the five or six minutes or so of the interview with him about the Finnish example. Strongly recommended. Um, fourthly, we have to learn from history. We have to learn from history. But the, the lack of resolve, the failure to keep focus on the big, big picture as far as inequality is concerned. We, 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 we have to learn the lessons of history. And it's been a sorry, sorry tale, really, over the last 70 or 80 years. Um, fifthly, it is an issue about society as well as education. It's about striking the right balance between liberty and equity. Um, and we argue, a, a, that education is different in kind from other purchases. It's different in kind because unlike buying an expensive car, expensive house, expensive this, expensive that, it helps to determine 
and does so much to determine the shape of society. It's, a, it's different in kind from other purchases. And, 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 and secondly, we argue that the equity, that equity for the 93% outweighs liberty for the 7%. Equity for the 93% outweighs liberty for the 7%. These are difficult judgments. They need serious debate, but it's time to get that debate rolling. Uh, and sixthly, lastly, I come back to our populist poll. Now, you'll do the first slide, Francis, and that's the slide you've already seen with the landslide majority. I mean, in terms of people with an opinion one way or another, uh, 75% uh, reckon that it's unfair system we have now. 75% of those who have an opinion one way or another. And this is about any kind of political campaign and the low profile on the whole of the, in, of the issue in the media and so on. But I, I think they're remarkable and telling figures. But we also can drill down one other way with this populist poll, Francis, if you could do the other slide. And this is among insiders. And insiders we define as people who have been privately educated and or have sent their children to private school. And, 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 and of course it's a slightly smaller majority, even so it's a striking majority. In other words, in terms of public opinion, there is actually something to work on. If opinion formers, if politicians had the nerve, had the vision, uh, there, is backing, there is backing for doing something substantive and important about this. So very lastly of all, we'll leave you with a picture that a friend kindly took on Wimbledon Station last year. And uh, in case some of you, just in case some of you don't know Wimbledon, let me, let me just put you in the picture. It's not an advertisement for a local comp. Thanks very much for listening. Okay, so we're going to um, pass over to uh, Dr. Luno Glucksberg now, who's going to give a, a, a five-minute or so uh, response to, uh, to the book. Thank you, Sam. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Francis and David, for the chance to read the book. It was, I really enjoyed it, and, well, it's great to be a discussant and to get the chance to ask the question. <laughs> so, um, well, first of all, I really like the fact that you took something that, to me, seemed fairly black and, black and white and made it into a nuanced and difficult and complicated subject. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, my training as an anthropologist might have something to do with that because if anyone in the room is an anthropologist, we all like to say, well, yes, but it's more complicated than that. So... <laughs> That really worked with me. I really liked it when you explained how education, as you were saying, is a different thing. It's not just any other luxury good. It's not a holiday. It's not a big car. And yet it seems that the core argument from one section of society is precisely that. I make lots of money and I'll spend it as I wish. And I think... So, so I'll make three very simple points, and this is one of them. And I think, in a sense, we need to be a little bit bold about demolishing that argument. Because not only does it not work in education, as you have very clearly explained, but um, if that's how we continue to think, we'll all burn with climate change. If I make enough money and I'll do as I please is the way we go, then... I'll eat four steaks per day and drive an SUV. And who's to tell me otherwise? Now, luckily, it seems that things are changing a little bit at the moment, and we're starting to hopefully 
think differently. But it seems to me that that argument really needs to be demolished and put to bed once and for all. The freedom to do as you please because... And also, we know perfectly well that that is not true. There are plenty of things that are outside of the market. You cannot buy babies. You cannot buy organs. You cannot buy child prostitution. You're not allowed to own people, even though that was perfectly legal only a few years ago. So the fact that something is within or without the market and the freedom to do what we please as we please with our money is something that is culturally constructed and shifts, is not natural. So I think that's an argument that really needs to be grasped. Um, well, I think actually because of lack of time, I'll, uh, I'll skip to the third one. And, and that's something that I was very curious about and was the fact that throughout the book I couldn't really find much... Um, well, I, I really liked the, the way that you, you showed the Sutton Trust data, but I couldn't find anything about gender very much. So, yes, those people, the 7% that goes to the top schools, obviously manages to get access to incredible positions of power. But by digging a little bit into the numbers with the help of my colleague Aaron Reeves, mm-hmm. um, it was quite remarkable to see that, for example, even though, broadly speaking, in that 7% of children, more or less 50% were girls. Mm. As you go up, as you move up, that percentage tends to fall. And so you find yourself, if I'm right, that with the HMC schools, which are kind of an, the upper tier, yeah, yes, yes. you're already on 43% of girls and 57 of boys. And then if you move remarkably up into the Clarendon schools, then you have only 11% of girls. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering... Well, I mean, it's, it, it, partly it's a function of history, isn't it? Because the Clarendon schools, which were the kind of the, the great, in inverted commas, public schools of the, uh, identified as such in the 19th century, but actually they were many, several centuries old for the most part by then. I mean, schools like Eton and Winchester go, go back to the Middle Ages. Um, but at that point, of course, they were all male schools yes, and absolutely. would remain so until, I mean, I, 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 I like Sam um, uh, and indeed Francis, I'm frankly educated. And at my school, Wellington, the autumn of 1969, which was my last term, the first girl arrived. Um, <laughs> um, surrounded by 630 boys. Well, it's funny you should say this because. Ooh. Ooh, this is. Well, we can still see. Um, and we're back. By digging through the data a little bit, we seem to have found one girl, I believe she was at Winchester, or maybe. And it wasn't quite clear if that was an admin error because it seemed impossible to think. I'm now feeling a little bit like I'm thinking about this one girl among yeah, I 800 boys. I think I know the source of that, which is mid-60s Winchester. Well, so it's, the, it's the, the current, it's the current data. Oh, if, you, if you go yes, on Rob.uk, yes, okay, sure. yeah. So, uh, but, but, but no, broadly speaking, um, uh, I, I, I don't... We, 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 you know, we haven't viewed it... Um, as, as far, it's far more a class issue than a gender issue. Um, and, um, uh, I, I mean, obviously, historically, the most powerful private schools have tended to be the 
boys-only schools because they're the schools, eaten par excellence, that have produced the prime ministers and, and, mm. and so on. And we've only so far reached the second female prime minister in this country. Um, so uh, we, we just have tended not to view it as a, as, mm. as a gen- gender issue. And in terms of the sort of the, the literature on the subject, it's okay. certainly the historical issue. It's tended to be stronger on the... Uh, on the boys' schools than the, the, mm-hmm. than the girls' schools, okay. um, but um, uh, but but perhaps we sh- you know we, we perhaps we should have done a bit more on the girls' schools. But we but that said, we we, we simply don't view it as a essentially as a gender issue. I mean, there is a difference on the gender side that, that one of the chapters that Francis was primarily responsible for to do. I'm right in saying to do with the dividend, isn't it? The um, it's interesting that the dividend is different for, for boys and girls, at least if you drill down to it enough, and it's sometimes difficult to be sure, but tended to be higher for the boys than the girls, in mm. fact. Uh, at least for those who were going to school in the 1970s and 1980s. Whether it still is now, I don't have any evidence for it mm. being different now, because that may well have changed. But it, it's clear to me, to my mind, that my, that's sort of associated with all the boys going into high-paid jobs in the financial and business mm-hmm. sectors. And before, before and so it's reflecting we, kind of the gender divisions in society. And I think actually it's a fair... I think it's a fair point. I, I sort of... In this, I think we, we, we possibly should have said a little bit more about those things, but we didn't want to get diverted onto that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, I and, suppose and, I suppose I was, that was what I was trying to push a little bit, that these bastions of privilege are not just class-based, but they're also very white. Ethnicity is another point that very white and very male, which might be sort of mm-hmm. obvious and by the by, but... They're very not much of Asian, so. Not of Asian children in private schools. Yes, Sorry? Not, no, yes. not of Asian Well, it would be interesting to see how uh, Seamus Khan in the, in the US makes the argument of how ethnicity seems to be changing in their top schools, but that's because um, foreign parents are buying into that, so class kind of changes the composition. But it's, it's just, I suppose... It, I wanted to push a little bit on the intersectional angle of, of, of the... Yeah. On, the thing, on, um, on, on your earlier remarks, I mean, I completely agree that we need to make robustly the argument about the limits of libertarianism. I mean, you know, and you're absolutely right, it applies in all sorts of, you know, walks of life. The analogy I've often thought is, you know, you have a powerful car that can go at 140 miles an hour, but it's in the interests of society that you drive somewhat slower. Um, you know, uh, but the frontier between the, you know, the two, between, particularly between liberty and equity, are always, it's a shifting frontier. But, it, but, but it's in the wrong place at the moment, I think, mm. so, in, in terms of this issue. And the chair has just let me know that I have time for my second point. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I wasn't sure how you feel about, maybe I didn't quite understand, uh, if your fair access um, idea would be based, still be based on academic performance? Would it still be the brightest that get in? No, no. We, we tried to remain very neutral on that, that we right. would conform to the school's admissions code. However, that was constructed democratically by society. I mean, I think it would be disastrous that they were all made highly academically mm. selective. Mm. But... Um, 
I wouldn't want to stand here and rule out any academic selection in those schools right from the start. Or maybe that's something which we could discuss, but I actually mm. think the key thing is that it's socially determined what the, uh, what the access code should be. Um, we didn't want to get drawn into a sideline of whether you know, we were in favour of academic selection or not and getting into the grammar school debate. So that, that was it. But that's, but that's any any method of you know, determining intake is essentially better than the depth of parental checkbook is our, is our starting yes, point. Yes, I think that's... I, 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 can, I can see that. I think from... Um, it's interesting, and if I, if I may sort of plug this uh, uh, new report that's come out of CASE, our Centre for Analysis of Social Equality here at the LSE, is this idea that actually they've accumulated a lot of data and shown that it's actually even if you wanted to, separating a concern for poverty and a concern with inequality seems quite impossible. They seem to still go together. So in order to do something about poverty and the bottom, mm-hmm. actually you need to work on inequality. Interesting. So that could be something to um, you know, feed into the debate. Yes. Yes. And I think I've taken enough time. Yeah. So. Should we, Shall we open up, Sam? Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Lena. Okay, so we, we've got about 20 minutes for questions. Um, I'm sure there's going to be lots. Here we go. Um, so, this is, so as we know, this is a sensitive topic, right? Um, so um, just to say, just in the interest of, of, of time and so we can get through lots of questions, if you could please keep these two questions, not comments or diatribes. Okay. Um, okay, so gentleman there in the blue jumper. We'll take two or three at a time. Gentleman here in the green jumper. And um, lady there in the black top in fifth. Yes. yes. Just there. Yep. Just here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, do you want to... Let's start. Um, where, did the first, where did the first mic go? In the uh, corner. Uh, <laughs> Hi. So thank you. Thank you for, for an insightful, if not sobering, um, lecture. I'm a father of two young children, and, and as a father, you only want the best for your, for your children. Um, and and, and that, is, that is the paradox, I think. Um, given the huge paradox here, given the huge advantages that private school confers against the huge inequality that it delivers, can I ask of the two professors with your own children and your own grandchildren, what decisions you made uh, in educating your children? I I mean, in in my case, I certainly didn't make a decision about my grandchild. Um, (laughs) um, uh, In terms of our children, I have three children, uh, and they all went to to state grammars. Uh, I would have been entirely open if circumstances had been different to them going to a, a private school the parental impulse to do the best for your child is, 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 is very strong. Um, uh, uh, I, we, I, we happened to move, and it wasn't part of our calculation to an area, but uh, happened to have state grammars, uh, and, and, and our th- three children happened to pass the 11 plus, but if they'd, if they'd failed, if it hadn't worked out, uh, you know, who knows, who knows? So, so I, I really... You know, both in a, on a, in a personal sense and in a kind of hopefully standing back sense, you know, absolutely feel that condemning 
criticizing parents for choices they make as parents, even if those parents are Labour politicians, uh, actually is, is stupid, actually, really. If you don't mind, we'll, just, we'll take a couple more and then we'll keep answering. So, yeah, if you want. Hi, just quickly, what do you think of um, matching curriculums um, for... What do you think of matching curriculums in, this, in state schools and private schools? Matching, matching curriculums. And then, what that means, right? Yeah, just here. So just put them there in the black top. You go for that one, Francis. Thank you. Um, I'm from South Wales, and our like, greatest political export, um, Bevan, I think he said, uh, talked about rising not out of your class but with it. And I'm just wondering how you think that given the massive sort of social determinants of uh, educational opportunity like health and housing, how that fits with your sort of notion of crossing the tracks when there's bound to be so many people left behind um, from this sort of potentially misguided concept of merit. Does that make sense? Thank you. Okay. Okay. You go first and I'll do the second. The question was on on matching Matching curriculums. What do I think about having the same curriculum in... Um, Well, to the extent that most people do public exams, they're doing similar curriculums, not identical, I I agree. Um, But if there's a a particular agenda called matching curriculums, I'm not sure the point of of your question yet. I apologise, I'm not fully understanding your, your, your question. But, I mean, as it stands at the moment, with all the extra resources... There is a much extended curriculum available in a private school. Very many more options available. You know, if you wanted to do an option which, you know, is any one other person, maybe just a couple of you in the class, that's no problem because the resources are there in some of the more affluent schools. So the, the curriculum is broader in many of the private schools. Um, it would be lovely if that were available to everybody, but we don't live in, in a utopia um, uh, but matching them completely, even under a fair access scheme, might not be... Not, that wouldn't be the first thing I would aim for. On the, um, the, the Nybevan question, the, the, to do with... Um, effectively, I think you're asking, really, is um, are, are we right to almost sort of fetishise as much as we do social mobility is, is sort of what you're asking, I think. And, and it's something uh, which, which I find I'm very conflicted about, the whole question of, of, of social mobility, uh, uh, and indeed meritocracy, and I think you, 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 you talked about merit. As you know, meritocracy, the word was popularised in 1958 by Michael Young, the, 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 the rise of meritocracy, and he saw it essentially in a dystopian way, he saw these merits, he envisaged a future of self-perpetuating meritocratic elites uh, and eventually it would actually lead to a civil war and he dated that civil war, he was looking ahead to 2034 so let's, let's wait for that one um, uh, but uh, 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 on the other hand he was not in favour of hereditary privilege old boy network and all the rest of it so where does one get the, ba- the, 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 where does one get the balance right and there's the whole kind of creaming off thing uh, as well. I remember going to a lecture once by the historian uh, and political commentator, the, the great Peter Hennessy, uh, about uh, Michael Young and meritocracy. And at the end, I asked him, so where do you... He kind of evaded saying where, exactly where he stood. So I was, at the end, I said, well, are you actually, when it comes to in favour of meritocracy? And he paused and he answered, I think I'm in favour of a well-tempered meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And, and so not fetishising 
uh, and not getting into the, that, 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 that society gets into that state of mind where it regards academic talent, academic performance, and all the rest of it as, 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 as the, you know, the, the greatest achievements of all. Um, but actually, as Michael Young puts it in his book, uh, the working man who grows roses in his garden, that's just as valuable as any kind of, you know, uh, 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 you know first-class degree or whatever. Um, so it's a balance to be struck. But I do think that, call it equality of opportunity, is, is, is broadly speaking uh, a, good th- a good direction to be moving towards. And that the private schools, um, the, 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 the playing field is so grotesquely uh, uneven, is so grotesquely sloping, um, that it's, it's, you know, it's, the last section of our book is called A Fair Shake, and that's looking forward, hopefully, at the moment, it's a very unfair shake for 93% of our, of, of our population. So I think we need to move in that direction, but to quote Hennessy in a well-tempered way. Okay, three more questions. Right at the back, lady in the black top, just in the second back row in the middle. Um, lady here in the orange jumper. And let's go with this gentleman here in the... What's that, sorry? Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for that. Um, you touched on the choices of parents, um, but I wondered about the choices of private teachers. Um, what do you think of the view that if we remove all fee-paying school, it will, reduce, it will release sorry, a large amount of teachers into the, pub, uh, into the state school system and bring up the overall quality? And also, do you have a version of your pie chart that surveyed whether private school teachers felt that private education was unfair? Um, okay, so let's just let's take a couple thanks, more. Thanks, Sam, yes. So lady in the um, orange jumper. Um, just this third one down here. This gentleman here in the um, orange jumper. Oh, uh, linked to that, I'm actually a teacher in a uh, school with about 45% people premium, a state school, and I'm still unconvinced as to how any of your measures will improve the problems that my school faces and other schools like it face. Okay, and then just one last question here. Yeah, my last question is to professor with the green uh, trouser. Uh, It's about the the selection at the university, because I come from a country where basically in order to get to the best uh, university, the best uh, school, they do a selection for medicine, for the best uh, business schools, uh, for engineer, and so on. So basically only who is uh, who got the highest rank at the primary school, who is the apparently the most intelligent about the quiz, get the access to this kind of private university. So do you think that can be in a way good in order to, to get the best people out of the education system, or it can be another source of inequality? I didn't catch much sorry, of that. Sorry, is there a question there? Yeah. Well, just, 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 sorry, just to repeat, just repeat the question because I'm not sure we. Quite the question got is if you think it's correct to have this kind of selection system for each university in order only to get the best student. Did you get the question, Sam? Sorry, one, one last time. We'll get it this time, I promise. My point is that uh, we, we basically discuss private, private school that is a kind of inequality. 
I mention a case of a country where basically they do selection in order to get to the university, that most of them are private university. Even if private university, you pay a fee based on your income, so sometimes you pay nothing. My point is that uh, if this kind of uh, system to, to only, always do a selection based on the Mars or primary school or intelligent test, if not a, f a form of inequality in a way. Okay, so is any selection a form yeah. of inequality? Okay, so yeah. shall I? Yeah. Um, on, on, the, on the private school teachers, the, um, in the long term, the medium and long term, private school teachers would become, yes, more available for, for, for teaching in state schools, <coughs> one would hope. I'm not all of them. Um, particularly in some of the uh, more affluent private schools, there will be Difficulties, I think. Uh, there will be teachers in those schools who wouldn't know very well how to control a class in inner city London, for example. Um, so the transition would happen, but it would have to be slow, and not everyone would, 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 would go with it. Um, as for the views of the private school teachers themselves, I'm afraid I can't help you there. That, that, we needed a sample of private school teachers. It was a representative sample across the country, so uh, we, we couldn't identify the private school teachers in our sample, and in any case, there wouldn't have been enough of them. Um, maybe I could then also turn to the, the question from over there. How, how would it help the state schools? And um, I, I, w I wouldn't expect sudden salvation from the difficult position that state schools are in with in, you know, diminishing funds uh, since at least the last five years uh, from from reforms. This this is a, a slow reform process that we're we're talking about. But I do think that in the long term there would be some benefits. In the long term there would be uh, potentially there would be perhaps more prominence, more importance given to education when the education ministry isn't populated by people who have been privately educated. When uh, many of the private school uh, parents, private school children's parents, who are many of them very passionate about education, if their energies were spent on trying to improve their local state schools, there could be benefits there. These are a little bit, well, they're real, they're not very specific. I can't say that it will suddenly produce so many hundreds of millions of pounds, etc., that will go into the state sector. I don't think this is the way to improve the state sector in the next in the next year. There's nothing to me. Put more money into them. They've been deprived of funds. But that's a separate issue from what we're talking about. Mm. I mean, the, the, the what the the, the oh, well, you're for the third one, Francis. But the Adonis uh, thing that uh, proposal that Francis mentioned, the educational opportunity tax, did say direct transfer of resources, hypothecated tax, about 25% of school fees going into uh, specific areas uh, of, of, of 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 the state system. Two and a half billion. Uh, um, a significant amount. Two and a half billion. Um, we calculate. Uh, um, uh, and I think also if it was a more uh, if it was a more level playing field, uh, that would be a source of huge encouragement to, 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 to the state system. I mean, polling evidence suggests that sixth-form um, six teachers in state schools underestimate the proportion of 
uh, uh, state school intake at Oxbridge. It's, it's too low, but they, uh, really, but they actually underestimate what it is because of that sense of sort of fatalism. They're, they're up against, you know, it's the, it's, it's the League Two team up against Man City kind of thing. Uh, and a more level playing field would make a, a significant difference in, in sort of, you know, aspiration, ambition, and, and so on. I think it would have a huge sort of psychological uh, effect. And the Finnish example, I mean, basically what Salberg says about Finland is that if you have two parallel systems, you will not get excellence across the whole piece. Uh, and they, they've, they've stopped having two parallel systems. They've achieved excellence across the whole piece. And I gather that the only real problem they have in, 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 in Finnish state schools is that too often the teachers are away uh, on sabbaticals doing PhDs. Um, would that, it, would that, that was our biggest problem here? Okay. Um, time for a few more questions. Okay. Gentlemen here in the glasses. Fourth row. Selection inherently unequal. Okay. Is that what the question is? Well, that's what Sam said. Right on the end of the row in a red t shirt, about halfway up. And then, right at the end, gentlemen there on the right. Hi there. Uh, My name's Rory. I'm in the inequalities program here at LSE. Uh, doing the MSc inequalities. Uh, you've made a really strong case here for how private schools uh, have the system of social reproduction that they support. Uh, and we saw it amongst the elites and cabinet and prime ministers, etc., that it produces. So therefore, isn't it uh, very much part of the private schools a law for uh, a large numbers of the upper class is the social reproduction? And if we fill their ranks with the working class, won't they simply make that distinction and that social reproduction elsewhere? You also dangle the Finnish example in front of us. So then why today are you not arguing for the abolition of private schools rather than just fixing a broken system? So, so just... Oh, just sorry, yes. here. Yeah, we'll take, we'll so take two on, more quick ones. Yep. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, David here, first chair at LSE. Um, I was just really interested about when you spoke about the, how people who go to private schools and later on you know, uh, become people of significance and then suffer from this, um, this feeling of hypocrisy and they feel like they can't um, stand up for you know, state schools because they went to a private school. And I find it really interesting that an educational inequality is perpetuated by this psychological barrier. Um, so my first kind of question is, can you tell us a little bit about how you overcame that psychological barrier as to come out and um, you know, try and tackle this issue? And then I'm wondering if there's a, there's a broader way of trying to, to portray this to people who, who do hold positions of significance. How could they overcome the psychological barrier and whether that will actually lead to a difference? Thanks. Okay. Bert, last question. Thank you for the discussion. I think it's been great. Um, I just wondered uh, whether you thought it was necessary to address what I think is one of the biggest changes happening at private schools right now, which is the huge influx of international students um, and the effect this has on pricing out the children of middle-class British students, the children of sort of teachers or doctors who used to be able to afford private schools and now can't, and instead sort of a huge proportion of private schools are now like Chinese, Russians, Arabs. And I, like, I know stories of sort of uh, children of dodgy Russians who pay their fees in, with a briefcase of cash. Um, and I wanted... I wondered sort of what you thought of this and what solutions there might be to this problem. Okay, we've got just two minutes left, guys. Okay, Okay, so so have one minute each. Okay. To be very quick, that uh, why are we not advocating the abolition of the schools? Well, 
For a start, at least until Brexit happens, it would be against the European Convention of Human Rights and extremely difficult to bring about. Um, funnily enough, if Brexit happens, it will make it a, a teensy-weensy bit easier. Not that that makes me in favour of Brexit. Um, uh, to, to fully answer your question, I haven't, seriously, I haven't, I haven't got time. Um, but I tried to say some things about why we were against full abolition in my talk. I think that if we do enough partial integration of the sectors, that it will do the job for reforming and, 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 and opening things up a lot better. I think also, historically, there's always been that tendency, not just to do with this issue, that the um, pursuit of the perfect um, uh, leads to the failure to achieve the good. And we would really like to achieve the good. Perfect would be wonderful, but the good would be more than acceptable, given the historic failure to achieve anything over the last 70 or 80 years. So we're not apologetic about the argument that it's politically unrealistic to aim for abolition. I mean, anyone wants to try, good luck to them, but, but I think it's unrealistic. Let, let, let me go next to the question from over there about the international students. And you're quite right to point out that we didn't say anything in our talk about international students. About 10%, a bit under 10% of private school children are now international. It's been growing over the last 20 years. Um, but let's, let's be under no illusion. It's not just because of international students that the price has been going up over the years. It's because of increasing inequality of wealth and that very high fees are quite exclusionary and often probably ex purposefully exclusionary of people who, who don't have, that, have the money. Um, and we shouldn't be completely dismissive of Russian oligarchs' children and so on, uh, and Chinese children. Uh, there is a globalization going on in, in global elites of, 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 of education, both at the school level and in university level, as we know. So, yes, there are more, uh, particularly in some areas of London, you see it, there are more international students and some of the schools themselves are worried if they get too many international students they change the dynamics change the the, the social the so, social movements of the school there's been some excellent anthropological studies actually of of that as well but we think that's a soluble problem i, I don't think it's something which we, if we reform the system we wouldn't kick out the international students they bring in money <laughs> they're an export um, and we don't we really don't want a reform system to be derailed by issues like that it was derailed by the issue of boarding in the 1960s and the commission which was given the job of trying to reform private schools just ran into a black hole of problems of how they're going to deal with the boarding school problem uh, we certainly wouldn't like to have the same thing how are we going to deal with the international students in the, in the modern day and age? I don't think they, do, they, they can be blamed wholly for the high prices in these schools. Okay. And to finish with that terrific question from, from there about the psychological aspect, in which, if I heard the question correctly, you're really almost saying, so if one happens to have been privately educated, how does one, as it were, come out and, 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 and criticise the system? 
And I have to say, at the ripe age of 67, having co-written this book with Francis, there are people, one or two friends or acquaintances, who are very much sort of emotionally bound up for a mixture of biographical reasons, autobiographical reasons, with the, with the private school system. I'm nervous about mentioning the book to. Uh, you know, and this is half a century after I left the wretched place. Um, uh, it's difficult, it's difficult. So I think the tone has got to be not accusatory, has got to be sympathetic and understanding. And as with anyone coming to... It's not easy. If you've, if you've had a very privileged education, you've had the education that 7% of people get and 93% of people don't, undoubtedly, if you've achieved anything in your life, that will have played a significant part in that. And it's not easy admitting to oneself that whatever one's achieved in life has not been wholly down to one's own ability or hard work or whatever, but actually one got a very lucky kind of... Um, one got a very lucky draw from the pack of cards. And it's not easy admitting that to oneself, to other people and so on, but actually it tends to be the... That is the objective reality, but it's a mixture of things, including that, 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 that circumstantial chance, according to the parents to whom one was born and their, whether they had wealth or not. Um, it's not easy, it's difficult terrain, and it needs sensitivity, but it also needs a degree of robustness, and above all, it needs kind of grown-upness and some kind of immature, emotional maturity that we can have this debate without getting bogged down in wretched kind of personal circumstances and one's always extrapolating from one's own situation and so on we should be better than that we should be capable of standing back and looking at the issue and working out what works best for us as a society and as an overall educational system okay on that note i think we're going to have to leave it for the night but if we can just say uh, thank you